A change in months from November to December brings with it an automatic change in temperament. The setting of Christmas seems to bring a climate of stability. In disagreement, there seems to be more tolerance, and in busyness, there seems to be more calmness. Churches tend to switch focus from their routines, going instead to special events and messages. It was my intention to get through the section on deacons in our study of 1 Timothy, ending last week exactly where we ended, because that provides a natural break then for us to now be able to focus on Christ as we draw closer to a time of celebrating his birth and his incarnation. If you notice in your bulletin this morning, this year we go to the Gospel of Luke. And there are two things that come to light with that. First is a pattern. In Christmas of 2021, I preached from Matthew. And last year I preached from John. It has been my intention since my arrival here to spend the first four years at Christmas going through the gospel accounts. So my plan next year then is to go through Mark and look at Christ from that perspective. And Lord willing, I've already planned or thought through what I would do in 2025 and 2026. But the other thing you should notice is that we're covering 17 verses today. Over the next four weeks, I intend to cover about 70 verses, averaging 17 to 18 verses per week. For someone who covers a verse or two a week, that's unusual. But my thought is this, if I can do it, it will be a Christmas miracle and hopefully prove to you God exists. And so with that plan, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, and I want to bring to you a message that I've titled this morning, Awaiting a Savior, the Psalm of Mary. Those of you who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1, we've already read in our scripture reading, verses 26 through 38. And so now we begin in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble servant, a humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped the serv his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> Every work of God concludes with the worship of God. Every action of God is an opportunity for the adoration by God's people. At the conclusion of creation, its goodness proclaimed God's goodness. At the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel proclaimed God's salvation. At the miraculous birth of Samuel, Hannah proclaimed God's sovereignty. And at the Lord's judgment of Judah, the angels proclaimed God's holiness. At every deed of the Lord, the people declare who God is. There is not a single act of God that is not worthy of our admiration. There is not a single deed of God that is not worthy of our devotion. The pinnacle of the work of God is the worship of God's people. When the Lord works, whether in triumph or trial, or whether in our satisfaction or suffering, the foremost response that we can have is to worship the Lord. History has set a standard. When God works, people worship. We let praise flow from our lips in affirmation of who God is and proclaim his works to others in affirmation of what God does. And so people will worship God. They will either worship him now voluntarily or they will worship him in eternity involuntarily. From the beginning of the Old Testament, the history of God's people shows a state of worship specifically a state of worship in song. Scripture is filled with many examples, like those I just mentioned to you, that of Israel, that of Hannah, that of the angels, showing that people respond to who God is by singing to who he is. The Gospel of Luke continues that pattern from the Old Testament, opening in the first two chapters with four nativity hymns. It is those hymns that will capture our attention in the upcoming weeks. Some will argue that these are not really hymns at all, because they are not metered, nor do they follow a form of poetry. But I would say such a debate has the potential of distracting us from what is really taking place here in these texts, which is a genuine act of worship in spirit and in truth, as John says is necessary in John 4.24. These are genuine responses to God, seated deeply in one's heart. They convey a sense of awe and a sense of fear of who the Lord is. Because the words that are uttered are sacred, preserved in the word of God, because they are so profoundly exalt who God is, I have chosen, chosen to call them psalms. And this first psalm of Luke brings us to the psalm of Mary. By the time we arrive at our text in verse 39, the angel Gabriel has made two appearances. He appears first to Zechariah, and the story tells us, in beginning in verse 11, and there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, 
and you shall call his name John. And then the angel goes and appears to Mary. And he says, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. These are extraordinary events. And an encounter with an angel is a frightening experience. And so it is first extraordinary in nature. When one looks upon such splendor and holiness, it evokes awe. It makes one fearful because of their <coughs> lack of holiness. We think of Isaiah who, in his encounter, responded, Woe is me. When an angel shows up in glory, you don't ask, How's it going? We tend to domesticate angels now. We paint little cherubs and make them very simplistic. But when an angel shows up in scripture, you wet your pants. <laughs> if this is just an encounter with God's servants, imagine what it must be like to come face to face with God who is absolutely holy and perfect. No wonder nobody can look upon his face and live. And so the angel has to tell them both, both to Zechariah and to Mary, fear not. Do not be afraid. It's also extraordinary in its announcements. Elizabeth and Mary will both conceive children, the angel declares. But one, Elizabeth... She's advanced in age. She's beyond her childbearing years and already thought to be barren. The other is not yet married, and she remains a virgin. Of anyone, these are not the women that anyone would expect to become pregnant. Because at this time, there's no natural means for that to occur. It can only happen by the work of God. As confirmation of what has been said, Gabriel tells Mary, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and, this is, and is in the sixth month with the one who is called barren. After Gabriel departed, then Mary responds to this news. And so we get to verse 39, and look what it says in Luke 1, 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary sets off to Elizabeth at this news. And when she arrives there, what we get is this divine fellowship of, of three people filled by the Spirit. Mary, who is, bears the Spirit of God through Christ Jesus. John, who Gabriel says in verse 15, he will be great before the Lord, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then we have Elizabeth, who according to verse 41, is also filled with the Spirit. Each of them uniquely responds to this work of God. They worship the coming Christ. And that's what I want us to see this morning. At this fellowship between Mary and Elizabeth and John, 
we have the very first meeting of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. It is here that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant meet. Technically speaking, because it is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that inaugurates the New Covenant, the Gospels are still part of the Old Testament. Everybody is still living under that Old Covenant. So the events of Matthew and Luke and Mark and John are still under that Old Covenant. But here they come together for the very first time. The Old Covenant under which John will operate and the New Covenant which Jesus will inaugurate. And they're brought together. Verses 39 and 41, they, through 41, they tell us how they come together. This meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. And those verses describe the encounter in this way. We just read part of it. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John and Jesus meet for the very first time in a manner of speaking. And it's significant enough that John actually responds. And so what I want you to note first is the praise of John. The praise of John. By his actions, John does two things. First, he acknowledges the presence of Christ. And then second, he actually announces the presence of Christ. Luke 1.41 says that John leapt from within the womb of Elizabeth. There is movement of a baby from within this womb of Elizabeth. It's always a joy to celebrate new life. And that movement, whenever it occurs, always reminds us of just how special that event is. But this movement of John is no ordinary movement. That very same description is given of Jacob and Esau, who leapt within Rebekah's womb. It was intense enough that it actually troubled Rebecca. And we're told that Rebecca appealed to the Lord in Genesis 25. It says the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The obvious difference between the story of Rebecca and the story of Mary is that within Rebecca are two people, two babies, while it's just Jesus within Mary. But that should convey the intensity even more. If Jesus leaping in the womb is like two babies struggling together, that says something. But it's actually in Psalm where we get this other vivid picture of what this leapt means. Psalm 114, it speaks of the fear of the Lord. And there a trembling takes place when one is confronted with the holiness of God. The psalmist says that at the Lord's presence, the whole earth quaked. And then verse 4 of the psalm says, the mountains leapt or skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. The mountains leapt like rams. This is no ordinary movement. At the presence of God, the people should leap and shake. And that's what John does. 
In doing so, he's actually fulfilling his calling. When announcing Elizabeth's pregnancy to Zechariah, Gabriel had said, he will be great before the Lord. And again, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So Gabriel says he will be great. But then Zechariah adds to that in our text for next week, in Luke 176, when he says, And you, child, meaning John, and you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John's life is not only composed by God, but it is given purpose by God. He was a forerunner to Christ. He would be the one to make Christ's presence known. And already he is doing that. Already he is announcing the arrival of Christ to Elizabeth and Mary. Maximus of Turin writes, Not yet born, already John prophesies. And while still in the enclosure of his mother's womb, confesses the coming of Christ with movements of joy. Remember again that both John and Elizabeth are filled with the Spirit of God and able to interpret these movements as they are intended to acknowledge that Christ is there. As Philip Graham Riken has said, John the Baptist is the only child to ever use the womb as a pulpit. John's response is the only response a person can have. When Christ is placed before someone, the only response is to acknowledge Christ's presence and then to announce that presence to others, declaring that Christ is here, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you read Romans 1, you will learn something very important you will learn that actually everyone believes in God. But content in their sins, according to verses 18 through 32 of Romans 1, they suppress that truth and they will not acknowledge him as God. Before Christ comes, God brings John the Baptist to announce his arrival. But because people suppress his existence even today, there is still a need to announce Christ. That is still what people need, is someone who will announce the Savior, the one who will cleanse them from their sins. From the womb, John actually worships Christ by announcing his work. From the world, we worship Christ by announcing that very same work. Adoration of Christ comes from acknowledging who Christ is and announcing it to others, announcing that presence of Christ. This is the praise of John. But John's not the only one who responds to the presence of Christ. Elizabeth responds as well. She actually lets out this loud shout in our verses. I want to read to you several verses about crying out, about giving out a loud shout. John chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him, meaning John bore witness about Christ, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. 
John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And then Romans 9, 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In each of those verses, we have this crying out. And what those verses demonstrate is that whenever someone cries out in Scripture, it's associated with this act of speaking some sort of divine truth. That's what Elizabeth does here, declaring a blessing upon Mary. Look back at our text in Luke chapter 1, and now read verses 40 through 45, or 41 through 45. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, she cried out, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I find Elizabeth's response interesting because at this time we're told she is six months pregnant. She herself, having been barren for her lifetime, is now also blessed by the Lord, having conceived at an age when it really shouldn't have been possible. But Elizabeth doesn't focus on herself. Elizabeth focuses on Mary. And so I want you to know, second, the praise of Elizabeth. The praise of Elizabeth. Like John, again, Elizabeth is full of the Spirit. And recognizing the significance of that movement from within her, knowing that she is in the presence, then not just of Mary, but in the presence of the Messiah. Elizabeth responds by dwelling in the presence of Christ, by dwelling in Mary's presence. And it begins with that greeting in verse 41. When Mary and Elizabeth greet one another, this is not a quick hi. It's not the hola with a Latin kiss very quickly on the cheek. A greeting in this culture, in the Hebrew culture, is a lengthy, formal endeavor. To better understand that, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. And when we get to Exodus 18, I want to look at verses 7 through 9 and look at them as they explain what happens between Moses and Jethro. So for a time, they've been separated, Moses and, and his father-in-law Jethro. And verse 7 begins, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. 
Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in in that way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Verse 9, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Notice what happens. The two of them greet one another. Moses bowing down before his father-in-law and then kissing him. Just for reference, when Bethany's dad arrived yesterday, I did not do that. (laughs) They exchanged a greeting. But this greeting, they exchanged it much like we would exchange a handshake and a hug today. But it's so much more involved. The greeting is not complete just with that bowing and kissing. It says that Moses recounted all that the Lord had done since the time of of leaving Egypt. And Jethro rejoiced over it with him. This takes time. They have to sit there and recount all that is taking place. But it's not just to recount what is taking place. It's ultimately to praise the Lord. So it's a substantial greeting that puts to shame our typical, hi, how are you, I'm fine greeting. No doubt Elizabeth and Mary then engaged in a similar type of greeting, sharing the similar stories probably about their visits from the angel Gabriel. And their, their stories would have been very similar. Upon hearing what had happened to Mary, Elizabeth then pronounces her, judge, her blessing on her using a Hebrew superlative to declare that of all the women in the world, Mary is the most blessed of all. This is a picture of what genuine fellowship is when believers dwell together in the presence of Christ. They enjoy one another's presence. But they don't just enjoy each other's presence. They recount what the Lord has done, and they rejoice together over it, and they celebrate over it. There's a genuine interest and a genuine concern, all coming from a genuine love, not just for one another, but for the Lord. They don't allow time to dictate their relationship. Instead, they allow their affection to dictate their relationship. Their affection for God and their affection for one another dictates how they relate with one another. Observing this fellowship, J.C. Ryle comments on these verses He says, we should always regard communion with other believers as an eminent means of grace. That fellowship is a means of God's grace. Fellowship with fellow believers is a divine encounter to be savored and made the most of because present in it is the Lord. But Elizabeth not only dwells in his presence, she does something very incredible in verse 43. She says to Mary, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you notice what Elizabeth does there? She calls Jesus my Lord. Only one filled with the Spirit can confess Christ as Lord, and that's what she does. This title, Lord, is a title given to Christ by God the Father in Psalm 110.1. 1. 
When the Lord says to my Lord, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And now Elizabeth takes this title, my Lord, and with this title, she places herself under Christ, submitting to his headship. From the womb, John has announced Christ, and he has acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And upon the Spirit's work of revealing who Christ is, there is only one response then a person can have, or should have, and that's submission to him. That's the praise of Elizabeth. She responds to John's announcement by acknowledging and submitting to Christ, declaring him, my Lord. Once we have seen who Christ is, a person cannot remain indifferent. When we see the glory of God through the glory of Christ, the only option available to any of us is to allow ourselves to be placed under his headship, allowing him to have his work prevail in our lives. Under Christ's lordship, Christ becomes a person's objective. So that all that Christ wants becomes all that we want. And nothing more, nothing less. The one who accepts Christ as Lord becomes a willing servant. Who presents his or her body as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God as a spiritual act of worship. Which is something we see not just in Elizabeth. but We actually see it in Mary as well. And so I want you to note third and finally... The praise of Mary. The praise of Mary. Here in Luke, Mary pens a song praising the Lord. Hartanahill describes it as an area in an opera. The action almost stops so that the situation may be savored more deeply. Ideally, that's what should take place here. We should slow down and savor the words of Mary more deeply. Quite ironically, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on her words. This song of Mary is often called or referred to as Magnificat. Magnificat. That title comes from the very first word of the, the Latin translation of that first line. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat means to magnify, to enlarge. And that's what Mary has done. Her view of God through his work has enlarged. And now she looks beyond what's in it for her to what's in it for God. Listen to what she writes. Beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you know how you summarize that? Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Mary proclaims how wonderful God is and how magnificent his works are. Mary, just like Elizabeth, submits herself to the Lord, worshiping her, him first in the praise of her words, first in the praise of the words that come from her mouth, but then also by action in obedience and servitude. She worships the Lord by becoming a living sacrifice, as Romans 12.1 says. Notice, first, notice that Mary does this in two ways. She does it first, actually, in her study. Its composition here, this, this poem, this psalm, it's really quite extraordinary. So majestic is Mary's song that it causes people to question how could someone of her age and her status ever compose something of this state? But I think they forget something. Mary has just traveled 70 to 80 miles, a journey that would have taken three to four days. With everything that has happened, what do you think she is thinking about on that journey? Probably the visit. It's probably the one thing that she has dwelt upon. That gives her plenty of time in this journey to reflect and develop a response to the Lord. But I think there's more than just her thoughts. I know there's more than just her thoughts contributing to this magnificent song. The reason Mary can create a composition of this depth is because she knows the scriptures. The Jews took Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 very seriously teaching God's truth to their children. And so it's very likely that Mary is being taught the Lord's truth from her family. But it's not just that fact that tells us that Mary studied the word. When you look at these verses, you see not Mary's words. These are God's words. In 10 verses here, she alludes to or quotes from Genesis and Deuteronomy 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Mary takes the word of God and turns it back into praise for God. She praises his power and his mercy, his faithfulness and his holiness throughout that. It takes knowing the word of God intimately to be able to do that pointing to just how much Mary knew scripture and believed it. But most notably, Mary's wording, worship of the Lord as a living sacrifice occurs through her service. When Gabriel visits and explains what is about to happen, Mary responds in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. She allows herself to become the Lord's servant, offering to do his will. When Mary is chosen for this, it's not a small task. Not just as the one who will bear the Savior of the world, but, 
she's going to be subject to ridicule and she's going to be ostracized. She will not only be ridiculed as a mother out of wedlock, but if she tries to explain herself, think of how that will sound. People are going to think she's delusional. Who would believe that she is pregnant and yet remains a virgin, let alone who would believe that she's carrying the Messiah? Just hear how absurd that sounds. If it were not for an angelic intervention, she would have been a husbandless mother because Joseph had purposed to leave her and he was within his right to do so. In spite of that potential ridicule, Mary still says, I am but a servant of the Lord. Do with me as you please. And so like John and Elizabeth, Mary had acknowledged Christ as Lord. And she noted this was God's doing. Once we have acknowledged Christ as Lord, there's only one response available to us, and that's worship through service. Not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Not out of compulsion, but out of conviction. Such worship is a product of Mary's humility. She repeatedly refers to herself as a lowly and humiliated. Her status is not just low in society, but she sees herself as low before God because in comparison to his holiness, her best efforts, her best works, her best character are nothing but filthy rags, as Isaiah would call it. Yet his favor is upon her. His blessing of her brings her to a point of worship through service. It's a service of thankfulness for exalting her from humiliation. And so before us, what we have is this magnificent story of John, Elizabeth, and Mary that climaxes with Mary's song and praise to God. And upon reading it, most people are overwhelmed, simply first off, by just the acceptance of this strange scene. Think of what happened. An angel by the name of Gabriel has visited two women of the same family, and he has told them they will each give birth to a son. These are two women who it is physically impossible for them to become pregnant, at least at this time. But not only will they each have a son, they are told that these, these sons will play an integral role to God's sovereign plan. And Elizabeth and Mary don't just laugh it off. They don't think themselves crazy. They just accept it as fact. That's not how most of us would respond today. We may laugh like Sarah did when she was told she and Abram would have a child. We might attribute it to Satan as the Pharisees did the miracles of Jesus. Or we might outright deny the work of God, as Paul says some of the Cretans have done. Most of us would probably at least try to rationalize the situation and reason it away. But they just accept it. And because it is so hard for us to accept it, the joy then that we see expressed in this passage by John and Elizabeth and Mary is slightly unexpected for us. It's beyond our comprehension. But do you see what they're doing? They are just responding to the deity and to the duty of Christ. They're reacting to the gospel. They are responding to the gospel in the very same manner that we should respond to it. John has acknowledged who Christ is. 
Elizabeth has confessed him as Lord and submitted to who he is. And Mary now worships him in a lifestyle of obedience. That's exactly what passages like Romans 10 or John 10 or Luke 12 tell us to do. When it finally clicks, when it, we finally have that moment of clarity about who Christ is as Lord and what he has done as the one who has died on the cross to rescue us from the depths of our sin, there is only one response we can have. To acknowledge him as Savior, confess him as Lord, and submit to his authority and will. And we will manifest that in a life transformation that worships him through obedience. But adding to this fascination of the story of John and Elizabeth and Mary is that their response occurs before Christ has actually arrived. They've been given promises that he will come. And there is obviously a preponderance of evidence that gives assurance that God is going to bring his will to fruition. They have no reason to doubt. But it hasn't actually happened yet. And still John and Elizabeth and Mary act as though it has already occurred. Their lifestyle of worship is motivated by their expectation that Christ indeed is coming. Do you realize that we're in a similar situation today? Circumstances may be very different. The expectation is still the same. Like John and Elizabeth and Mary, we have been given promises of God. And he has assured us of their truth by giving us a preponderance of evidence that it will come to fruition. So like them, we are waiting for the return of a Savior for the second time now. After Christ first coming, the people stood looking up at heaven, and it was asked of them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lost in the busyness of our day is the blessing of waiting expectantly for the coming of Christ. And what a glorious day that will be, Matthew says. We know that it is coming. We can live as though Christ has already returned. And so let us not miss this blessing of this promise that comes by living in it today. As Mary knew the word of God, let us know the word of God. 
May we preach it to ourselves daily, preach to ourselves and remind ourselves every day that Christ is coming. In the triumphs of the day, rejoice that the Lord is coming. And, he is ex- and be excited that that joy will be magnified. And in the trials of the day, rejoice still that the Lord is coming. And be encouraged that this tribulation will finally be extinguished. And in the knowledge of his coming, let us worship him as Mary does, composing to the Lord prayers of petitions and psalms of praise. There will be a day when those of us who have confessed Christ's name will be exalted by him. And so let us be prepared to exalt him on the day that he confesses our name. Let's pray. Our Father God, you are a God of salvation, Lord, orchestrating a plan so that we may find our hope in you. We may rejoice in triumph because you have been at work. And may we rejoice, are we able to rejoice even in trial because you are at work, Lord. Father, we see your hand in preparing this day for Mary and Elizabeth and John. And the significance of that is not lost on us as we know that it brings forth your son to rescue us who are perishing in our sins, Lord. But like them, Lord, I pray that we would be a people of hope, a people who are waiting expectantly for his return. May we call upon his name. May we submit to his lordship, Lord. Proclaiming your truth, living in your truth, honoring and pleasing you, glorifying you because of this great truth. May our lives and attitudes show a humble servitude of thankfulness, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.